Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse one, it says, then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat and built a tower and he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now, at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent them another servant and at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully treated. And again, he sent another and him they killed and many others beating some and killing some. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them last saying they will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read the scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him and went away. It's the final week of Jesus' life, and he's down to the final days. In Jewish tradition and in Jewish culture, it was the time of the inspection of the Passover lamb before it was offered. The lamb had to be perfect. It had to be, according to the scriptures, without spot and without blemish. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, Peter refers to Jesus as the lamb. Without spot and without blemish, the religious leaders will continue to embrace their religious traditions rather than embrace God's Messiah. Jesus will ask and answer questions, and in the process, a revelation unfolds. Jesus is God's Messiah. The hearts of men are desperately wicked. And so in this chapter, Jesus reveals the religious leaders' desire to destroy him in order to preserve their own selfishness and pride in verses 1 through 12. Hypocrisy in verses 13 through 17. Ignorance in verses 18 through 27. Superficiality in verses um, 28 through 40. And so the chapter opens with an illustration, a parable. It will continue with a series of confrontations about paying tribute in verses 13 through 17, about marriage and the resurrection in verses 18 through 27, about the greatest command in verses um, 28 through 34, and then about the identity of the Son of God in verses 35 through 37. During the process of inspection, something remarkable happens. 
They've come to inspect the lamb, but now the lamb is going to inspect them. Remember what a parable is. It's an earthly story that illustrates a heavenly truth. A parable means to take one thing and then another thing and lay them side by side and draw contrasts and comparisons with them. So Jesus will tell this parable in part to reveal to the religious leaders where their sin is leading them. The nation had already permitted John the Baptist's execution. And Jesus is next in line. The Lord Jesus is trying to convince the leaders of the sinful state of the nation. But more than that, the sinful state of their own heart and the terrible judgment that they were about to bring on themselves. So within this parable, there are many layers of rich truth. The the parable is told from the perspective of God. We're given a mini movie, if you will, of God's dealing with the nation and with the people of Israel. And of course, the owner of the vineyard is God and the vineyard itself is the nation Israel. We might also think of it as the place of privilege. But if you have a Bible, turn in your Bible back to the Old Testament, to the book of Isaiah. And the way that you can find Isaiah is go Past Proverbs, keep going right. If you get to Jeremiah, you've gone too far, hang a left. Isaiah chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved, a song regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard. On a very fruitful hill, he dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst. He made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please tell me, you, what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it shall be burned and break down its wall And it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are its pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression for righteousness, but behold, A cry for help. The religious leaders would have known that Jesus is plagiarizing this parable from the book of Isaiah. But it's not plagiarism when you wrote it. In time and space, Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, spoke and moved upon the hearts of men. So the focus, remember, is the Lord's expectation, his hope, its fruit. The vine dressers are the religious 
leaders in the past as well as the present, the servants or slaves or the prophets that God sent through the ages. And remember, John the Baptist is the last servant. He is the last slave, the last voice of the Old Testament. And we all know who the beloved son is. The beloved son is Jesus. He is God's last word. He's God's final communication. He is God's ultimatum to sinful man. And so this parable is both historical and predictive. Historical because it relates how God has dealt with the nation Israel and predictive because it reveals exactly what will happen to Israel. They will, for the most part, reject God's son in verse six because of their rejection and cruelty. God is going to reject them by giving the kingdom to others in verse nine. And so in verse one, look what it says. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and he set a hedge around it. He dug a place for the wine vat. He built a tower. He leased it to the vine dressers. And then he went into a far country. So the story begins. A man plants a vineyard. He builds a wall around it. He digs a wine press. He constructs a watchtower. Now, in the parable, we learn several things about the nature and the character of God. We learn right off the bat that God is generous. How? Because he provides everything that's needed. He provides the land. He provides the fruit. He provides the vineyard. We learn that God is trusting. The vine dressers are given a stewardship. A vine dresser is what they used to call in the South a sharecropper, someone you would lease the land to. In in Mexico, you call it a campesino, a person who is hired to till the land. So the Lord provides everything that we need. We also know that he's trusting. Why? Because the stewardship and the freedom is given to govern The land and the stewardship in in the ancient world, by the way, a hedge or a wall was built around the vineyard to keep out the animals, the pests, what my what my mom's mom would call my grandmother would call varmints. These were to preserve the grapes. The purpose of the wall was to protect and assure growth and fruitfulness. And then the Lord dug a wine press. This is a trough or a vat and the wine press would have either been made out of stone or it would have been made out of wood. And the vine press would have a lower story and an upper story, the upper story and the lower story. If it was made out of rock, they would literally make a pathway and they would take the grapes and they would stomp on the grapes in order for the, the, the juice to trickle down through the lower vat, so where the wine was pressed. And so that way the juice could trickle down from the upper vat to the lower vat, and then it would be gathered into wineskins. The trough becomes a type and a picture of the equipment that God uses to crush the grapes in order to make the wine. In one sense, we might think of this equipment as the process that God employs in order to crush us and make us fruitful in order to get what is necessary, the fruit. Now, the Lord builds a tower and the tower was meant to guard and protect the vineyard from vandals and thieves. 
the tower was usually about 15 or 20 feet tall. And so it could be used for shelter. It could be used for storage. It could even be used for protection. A man with a sling at that vantage point in the Israelis were really good at slings. They would take a piece of leather and another piece of leather and stone. And with this leather and stone from 20 feet out, they could hit almost anything. And so here is the point. The watchtower becomes a type and a picture of the assurance and security of God's care, which he provides for the cultivation. In other words, the vineyard is a safe place from which to operate. Now, everyone listening would have been deeply, deeply, deeply aware that the vineyard was Israel. They were also familiar with the passage that we just read in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, the men of Judah, his pleasant fruit. In Isaiah 5, 4, what could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, bring forth sour grapes... Wild grapes. The prophet indicated that God would discipline the offenders. But then Jesus explains in more detail why the custodians of the vineyard deserved punishment. And we can't ignore the application for ourselves. God is generous. God is trustworthy. God has made an enormous provision. We've been given everything that pertains to life and godliness. God has given us blessing. God has given us privileges. God has given us forgiveness of sin. God has given us Jesus in our heart. God has given us the Holy Spirit. God has given us the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. We are given the law of sharing and caring, of receiving and giving, of Sowing and reaping. And so in our text, we're told that the owner went into a far country. In Luke's gospel, we're told that a certain man went into a far country for a very long time. God entrusted them with the oversight of the people. And this is a warning to everyone who's been entrusted with the stewardship of God's vineyard. Whether you're a mother or a father or a grandmother or a grandfather. And again, I'm thinking of the foolish servants who imply that the Lord delays his coming. That the Lord gives the vine dressers a great deal of trust and freedom and stewardship and responsibility in order for us to minister to one another. But look again in verse 2. The wicked vine dressers, it says in verse two, now at vintage time, harvest time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. We know that God is generous. We know that God is kind. But in verse two, we learn that God is exacting. He expects payment. And in the parable, the payment is fruit from the vineyard. Now it's harvest time. The owner sends a servant to collect payment on the crop. We might think of this as both the expectation of God and the hope of God. The expectation is fruit. And he's already talked about that. Remember, and I've talked with you about that in in, uh, chapter 11. What you may not be familiar with is in Leviticus chapter 19. 
In Leviticus chapter 19, verses 23 through 25, a farmer who tilled the land, the owner of the land, couldn't use the fruit until the fifth year. But we're unsure whether the Jews were observing this regulation at this time. Warren Wiersbe writes, and I quote, In order to retain his legal rights to the property, the owner had to receive some produce from the tenants, even if it was only some of the vegetables that grew between the rows of trees or vines. This explains why also the tenants refused to give him anything. They wanted to claim the vineyard for themselves. It also explains why the owner continued to send agents to them. It was purely a question of authority and ownership. And the same is true for you and I. We have this false idea that God is far away and therefore distant or irrelevant. We sometimes forget that you were created to know God and to be known by him for friendship for fellowship. And so here is God and God's hope and God's expectation. I created you. I created you so I could know you and love you and be with you. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. What kind of fruit was God looking for? He was looking for love. He was looking for friendship. He was looking for fellowship. He was looking for holiness. The same thing he expects from the believer. And they took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent them another servant and at him they threw stones and they wounded him in the head and they sent him away shamefully treated. And we've learned that God is generous, that God is trusting, that God is exacting. But what else have we learned from this particular passage? We are given a peek into the patience and the kindness of the Lord. I want you to think about what you're reading. The Lord is allowing his servants to be abused and to be mistreated, to be abused and mistreated in a way that I would never conscience. If you did this same thing to my children, you should expect punishment. If you did it to my wife, then you should expect that I'm going to open up a jail ministry because I will kill you. And then I will serve out my ministry in prison. But I need you to understand what's going on. He isn't like you. And he isn't like me. He is patient and he is kind and he is patient and kind in the midst of abuse and mistreatment. Look again at what it says in verse five. And again, he sent another and they killed him and many others beating some, killing some. He's beginning to re. Establish the history of Israel. Remember Noah. Remember Abraham. Remember Joseph. Remember Moses. John MacArthur writes, quote, God had prepared a place of great beauty and blessing and then graciously given stewardship of it to the people of Israel. It was a place of promise. It was a place of hope. It was a place of deliverance. It was a place 
of salvation and security. But Israel misappropriated those blessings for herself, robbing God of the gratitude, the glory, the honor that was due him. She persecuted the prophets. He patiently and lovingly sent to call her to repentance and forgiveness. Jewish tradition held that Isaiah had been sawed in two with a wooden saw. From scripture, we learned that Jeremiah was thrown into a pit of slime. Tradition has us tells us that he was eventually stoned to death. Ezekiel was rejected. Elijah and Amos had to run for their lives. Micah was smashed in the face by those who refused to hear his message in 1 Kings 22-24. Zechariah was actually murdered in God's own temple in 2 Chronicles 24-20. The Old Testament bore history witness to their murderous hearts whose wickedness would culminate in the killing of the Son of God, unquote. No wonder even Stephen, when he was witnessing to the religious leaders after the death and the resurrection of Jesus, he would say to them, which of the prophets didn't you stone? And the patience and the love of God has to be contrasted with the evil hearts of men. Each representative of God is dealt with in an abusive and murderous fashion. Martin Luther wrote, if I were God and the world treated me as it treated him, I would kick the wretched thing to pieces. So, rebuffs, insults, beatings, doesn't stop him. God continues. He sends a messenger. He shows up time after time. Abuse after abuse. Mistreatment after mistreatment. And this isn't normal. This is not normal. For the person who wickedly insists that God isn't fair or that God isn't kind... He is supernaturally fair, supernaturally kind. We are normally kind to those who are kind to us. We are sometimes rude to those who are rude to us. We can become abusive to those who seek to abuse us. Someone said, people are unreasonable, illogical, and self-centered. Love them anyway. If you do good... Some will accuse you of selfish motives. Do good anyway. If you succeed, you win false friends and true enemies. Succeed anyway. The good you do today may be forgotten tomorrow. Do good anyway. Honesty and frankness may make you vulnerable. Be honest anyway. What takes years to build may be destroyed overnight. Build anyway. And Jesus shows up. And they hate him. And he loves them anyway. They don't want to hear what he has to say, but he speaks anyway. He comes over and over and over again. And look what it says in verse 6. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him. To them, last. Do you realize in that one sentence is a reiteration of what we've already learned from John chapter 3, verse 16, the most famous passage in all of the Bible? For God sent his only son 
into the world for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. He sends his son out of love and out of expectation. He sent him to them last. There is a final word, a final communication. And look what it says, saying they will respect my son What have we learned? God is generous in verse 1. He gives us everything we need in verse 1. He is trusting in verse 1. He gives us responsibility and freedom in verse 1. He's exacting in verse 2. He is patient. He sends messengers in verses 2 through 5. He is love. He sends his son into the world in verses 6 through 8. Surely the people will listen to his voice. Surely they will respect his rights. And note what else is happening. Jesus claims not to just simply be one in a long list of messengers sent with a message. He claims to be God's very son. He claims to be different from the servants that went before him. But those vine dressers, it says in verse 7, said among themselves, this is the heir. Come. Let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And I want you to remember the beginning of the parable. Remember, in the story, he has the owner going to a faraway country. Why is that important? Because what would prompt people to act in such an abusive way? What would prompt people to act in such a wicked way? What would cause people to think in such a wicked way? Because in their mind, God isn't there. He isn't really fair. He isn't there. Often human beings feel that God is unresponsive. God is uncaring. And so people ignore him and then they reject him. And in their way of thinking, he is inactive and therefore irrelevant. And so they reject God in verses three through five. And that rejection culminates in the rejection of his son. And so in verse eight, it says, so they took him. And they killed him. And they cast him out of the vineyard. You need to understand what's happening in the text. The murderers don't mistake him for just another servant. They know it's the owner's son. They plan his murder for the purpose of seizing the inheritance. And what is the inheritance? In this particular instance, it's religiosity. It is the religion. We have to contrast the love of the owner with the brutality of the vine dressers. And so even in that love and that brutality, everything is pointing to a cross. Everything in the future depended upon that cross. So God's love keeps coming. It is persistent. Man's opposition, his hatred is also persistent. His selfishness is persistent. But that doesn't stop him. Wickedness and unbelief and rejection doesn't stop him. Spurgeon says, if you reject him, he answers with tears. 
If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem you. If you bury him, he rises again in a resurrection. Jesus' love made manifest. He persists in his love. He continues in the love. In the New Testament it says, and having loved his own, he loved them to the end. The Bible says he drew his last breath. And he died. And every time you breathe in, it's an admission that God continues to love you. And every time you breathe out, it's an admission that God continues to love you. But there will come a day, there will come a day when your heart will stop and your lungs will cease. And then you're going to understand something about the judgment and the severity of God. Jesus predicts his own death. Jesus exposes the murderous hearts of the religious leaders and the religious leaders reject the son and they refuse the stone. And so there can only be one consequence judgment. Look at verse nine. It says, therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? In Matthew's gospel, we read the religious leaders themselves said, why that owner is going to come and he's going to punish those people. With your own mouth. With your own mouth. You reveal the circumstance of your own heart. Why is it necessary to have a savior? It's because there's something terribly wrong with us. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Who are these others? Are these the Gentiles who will hear the gospel and respond to the gospel? Are these repentant Jews and repentant Gentiles? Are these repentant Jews and repentant Gentiles even up until the last days? I'm going to suggest to you that's exactly who they are. If the religious leaders were offered a glimpse into the next generation, if they could just for a moment, when Jesus says he's going to destroy the vine dressers, give the vineyard to others, if they could just see the 10th and the 12th Roman legions approaching the holy city, laying siege to the walls, killing its inhabitants and taking others captives. And as a matter of fact, they're going to take every tree from 15 miles in every direction and they are going to cut it down and according to Josephus not thousands but tens of thousands of Jews are going to be crucified on those trees until they run out of room and blood will flow and in a few short days they're going to cry a cry they're going to say his blood be on us and our children and the blood will flow and the wheels of God's judgment grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly small. So what kind of a God is God? He is generous in verse 1. He is trusting in verse 1. He is exacting in verse 2. He is patient in verses 2 through 5. And He loves you. And He loves the world. And now we're reminded that He's just. That He will come. And he will make every wrong right. 
And for those who chose to keep evil close to their heart. Look what it says in verse 10. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus reminds them of the Old Testament scripture prophesied in Psalm 118 verse 22. The Messiah would be rejected by the Jewish leaders. And just a few days earlier when Jesus made his triumphal entry, the religious leaders were leading the people in a group of responsive prayers. They're called Hallel. They're the responsive readings. And they would read this psalm. They would read Psalm 118 verse 22. Even the religious leaders believed that this was a messianic psalm. And now Jesus applies the words to himself. The chief priests and scribes, the builders, reject Christ as a useless stone. I want to draw your attention in verse 10. See where it says, have you not read in the scripture the stone which the builders rejected? Look at that word rejected. It's the Greek word ape, doki. Masan. It's a very large compound word. It means to examine carefully. It means to examine with scrutiny. It means to deliberate. It means to examine carefully and refuse consciously. Why is this important to you? Because it's not a mistake. This isn't a gigantic misunderstanding. This isn't a situation where someone could say, well, wait a minute, if you're really the son of God, if you're really God's Messiah, if you're the satisfying solution to the problem of sin, give us a hint. Blind eyes, deaf ears, lepers cleansed. The dead come back to life. Demons disappear. What else do you need? What else do you want? What will it take to convince you? And so what else do we learn that he is trustworthy and that he keeps his promise? Remember what the cornerstone was. This is the first stone. The cornerstone is the first stone that is laid. All other stones come after it. It is the preeminent stone in time and place. The cornerstone is the supportive stone. All other stones are placed upon it and held by it. It is the preeminent stone in position and power. And so it is with Jesus. He is the first. He is the last He is the supporting stone. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 11, For there is no other foundation that that man can lay that is laid other than Jesus. Peter would take that same image and write in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 4, To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen by God, precious ye also, lively stones, living stones, built up a spiritual house as a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are holy and acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says, the very person that you're rejecting becomes the basis for all of the future. 
Jesus quotes the Hallel Psalms. The cornerstone, remember, wasn't just the chief stone. It was the measuring stone. This was the stone that was used to guide the selection of every single stone that would be used in the construction process. Now, keep in mind, keep in mind, keep in mind, Jesus is saying these words as he is standing in the remains of Solomon's temple on the stoa as the stones are linked one on top of the other. And for many years, Israel had been the stone that the empire builders had rejected. This was the stone that Assyria rejected and Babylon rejected and Egypt rejected and Greece rejected and Rome rejected. They were the people who were rejected. By the empire builders. And now. They were going to reject. The living stone. The chief stone. The guiding stone. The stone rejected. The crucified Christ. Will become the stone restored. And the foundation stone of all of the future. As a matter of fact, in a few weeks, Peter will remember these words. It will serve as the basis for his sermon that he delivers in Acts chapter 4, verses 10 through 12, as he begins to preach the gospel. And he says, all of this is God's work. It was God who will raise up the Savior. The Savior is the object of marvel and wonder. And look at verse 12. It says, and they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him and went away. The religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, the scribes, the Pharisees, they're seeking to lay hands on him. They've heard the outline of their sacred history. They've heard Jesus reveal their past and their present and their future. They've heard about the expectation of God, the hope of God, the love of God, the patience of God, and finally the wrath of God. But they are blinded by their lust and their ambition and their pride, and they reject this last loving plea for their soul. Now, we must never forget that when we reject the truth, we of necessity have to embrace a lie. And I need you to think this through. When unbelief investigates spiritual truth, the predisposition is to reject it. I want you to understand the full force of this parable. The religious leaders know that the parable is about them. Think about that for just a minute. Jesus has just said to them, you're going to kill God's son. Now, have you ever had an experience in church where you heard someone speaking and you had this strange feeling that the sermon was about you? And you say, well, Gina, how did you know about me? I want you to think about this for just a moment. 
The religious leaders know that the parable is a parable about them knowing that, knowing that, knowing that they still plot how they might kill the owner of the vineyard son. I want the full impact of that to sink inside of your soul. I want you to understand what's going on inside of their heart. How is it possible that such deceit and such delusion and such pride and such wickedness, such impenetrable pride and impenetrable wickedness. The Jewish leaders don't take the parable to heart. They heard, but they don't heed. They spoke. Jesus spoke of their wickedness and their ungodliness and their condemnation, but they don't even for a moment, they don't even for a moment reflect that the charges might be true. The religious leaders aren't convinced and therefore not convicted. They won't Repent. And because they won't repent, they won't be forgiven. They know the truth about Jesus. And they won't follow him. They know the truth about their own sin and their own duplicity and their own pride and they won't learn from it. Their minds are raging with the thoughts of self-justification and revenge and their reaction is to seize him and to kill him. But the leaders are afraid of the people. So what are we to think? How are we to think about this? Some people react to the words of Jesus and some people repent at the words of Jesus. The religious leaders know, they know, they know that that he's talking about them. But their conscience is seared with an obstinate unbelief. They're insensitive to his warnings. The religious leaders embrace a false view of his Messiah. Remember, the religious leaders believe that the people believe that he's some great prophet, that he's some great teacher. And soon the chief priest will say it's better that one person dies so that the nation can be saved. Jesus is a great prophet, a great teacher, but he's not the true and living son of God and God's real Messiah. And look at the end of the sentence. So they left him and went away. They left him and they went away. People make decisions all the time. We see in their decision fear and folly and their fate. I want you to think about this. For those of you who've been watching the Olympics, some of you know that these athletes, these men and women train their whole life. And sometimes the difference between success and failure, the difference between agony and defeat, the difference between first place and second place is one one hundredth of a second. Do you realize it's impossible for you to blink that fast? Now, I want you to think about this. Can you imagine? There you are in the temple. You are this close to Jesus. If you wanted to, you could reach out and you could touch him. There he is. There is his hair. There is his eyes. There is his robe. You could reach out and touch him. But you are you're inches away from Jesus and you're still a thousand miles away. How is that even possible? How is it to be so close but still miss him by so much? 
And in the passage, we're reminded of God's amazing patience and his amazing love and his terrible judgment. Now, think about this. God is generous. He gives us everything we need in verse one. He's trusting. He gives responsibility and freedom to govern life in verse one. He's exacting. He expects fruit. He is patient. He sends messengers to receive payment in verses two through five. He is love. He sends his own son into the world and he is just. He will satisfy the need for justice. He's trustworthy. He will fulfill his promises. So we learn about his provision and we learn about his protection and we learn about privilege and we learn about purpose and we learn about patience. But we learn something else, the precarious position for those who say, No, thank you. And that's just the first 12 verses. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, it's so difficult to understand how people with such deep conviction are resigned to resist and reject Jesus. Lord, I pray for that person who finds himself or herself in a position where the emptiness and the darkness and the wickedness has just become overwhelming. Lord, for the empty heart, I pray that you would fill it. And for the guilty heart, I pray that you would forgive it. And for the broken heart, I pray that you would heal it. But Lord, I pray right now that each and every person would have an opportunity to personally and publicly turn to you. Declare love and loyalty to you. Be willing to say, you know what? God has been so patient. He's been so kind. He's been so generous. He's been so loving. I've abused and mistreated and, and taken advantage of his grace. And now I want to trust him with my life and my future. Lord, you've given every opportunity for people to turn from their sin and to turn to you. That not a single person can say with any conviction, how come I never knew? How come you never told me? How come you didn't provide me with abundant proof? But Lord, I just pray that everyone would open up their heart to Jesus. That they would turn from their sin and that they would trust him completely. And if that's you, if that's a description of you. Please don't leave our sanctuary without praying this simple prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I want to turn from my sin and I want to turn to you. And I want to experience the grace and love and patience. I want to believe the message of hope that Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is the Savior. And that the expectation that you have of friendship and fellowship and fruit could be true in my life. So I turn from my sin and I turn to Jesus in Jesus name.